0: Hi, this is Tamsin Granger.
1: This is Dan Abuhoff.
0: With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper on Monday, August second. Yeah, Monday.
1: 2021.
0: It's August. That's right. Yeah, because uh, well, you know, usually we record on Sunday. Yeah, we are uh,
1: globe trotting. We were. We were in transit, coming home from Block Island. We're back in civilization, but we had a great two weeks in Block Island, and frankly, you know, we're kind of oriented in a Block Island way. We have an island perspective right no, now. Not really. But I did want to say something about Block Island that yes. we
0: didn't mention before, I okay. think, Yeah. is that for the first time uh, in all the years, yeah. which is over 40 years, right. that we've been going to Block Island. Right. We saw seals. Oh, that's true. Yeah,
1: There are seals on Block Island.
0: And uh, there are always seals there, apparently,
1: in the winter, but they leave uh, by late May. Well, first of all, yeah, in the water, by the way. I mean, just yeah. so we're clear. So you look they out. hang out there. You're sitting on the beach, you look out in the water, and you see these things, these little dark shapes bobbing a little bit, and you go, what the heck is that? And it's not the Loch Ness monster, it's uh, the seal. they're seals. And uh, the first week we were there, we saw them absolutely every day.
0: And uh, just going by the normal swimming beach. It was great. So that was fun. Turns out that uh, the seal population of uh, Cape Cod has exploded. Really? So that the nature people at Block Island explained to us they think that.
1: some seals are moving from Cape Cod to Block Island. Well, they've got to come up with some explanation. It's, uh, I don't know what else it is. But, uh, and, and apparently it, it they, they, they've been there in the winter before, but we don't go in the winter. So, uh, yeah, it's a new development. New excitement at Block Island.
0: Well, we, always, we very often have some
1: kind of nature experience. Yeah. Well, look, we, we swim in the ocean. I mean, so we're in there, and I'm not looking to run into a seal, honestly. So, to me, I wouldn't say it's a mixed blessing because I don't think there's any likelihood that we run into a seal. But, you know, it gives you a the pause. They did say that seals attract sharks. Well, that's uh, that's another downside. But, but mainly when they're
0: having babies. Yeah. When they pup.
1: Pup being the yes. word. Yeah.
0: But it wasn't time for that
1: yet. So we were yeah. not too yeah. concerned. It is beautiful. Anyway. beautiful in Block Island. So, uh, yeah. So, in any event, so we, we have spent most of our time in Block Island. Uh, outside, because that's what we do, right? So we're swimming or we're biking. But, you know, you got to have some downtime, you got to recover. And uh, Oh, by the
0: way, Sadie did the mile swim again this year. Oh, that's
1: true. I should mention that. Sadie that is funny. intrepid. Uh, each year there's a mile swim uh, in the salt pond to raise funds to save the salt pond. And the great a, salt pond. Right, the great salt pond. And it's a daunting task. It is unbelievable that people do this. It's, uh, it doesn't look like any fun. The water is not entirely calm, it's difficult to see the course. Uh, and yet Sadie does it every year. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, I should and say, she
0: prevails.
1: She prevails. She finishes. Sadie's very fit, but she doesn't swim on a regular basis. She's fit with land-based activities. And yet she feels that, uh, that's no problem. And it turns out she's right. She just, uh, wades in the water, kind of laughs it off and goes. So, uh, more credit to her. It's pretty impressive. Um, but during the downtime, and this includes Sadie too, we find ourselves, you know, chilling out and watching the Olympics. Because the timing is such that we had that opportunity this Which year. Which is no
0: mean feat. We don't always have uh, TV access. We We're do. on Block Island. But we have it here. But this year we accidentally had it. All the channels,
1: all the events. Yes. And uh, I would say my impressionistic uh, view is that uh, the Olympics is uh, women's beats volleyball 95% of the time. That's that's what I see on the that's screen. That's what it seems to be. It's, uh, I don't know what the appeal is, but there seems to be some appeal. Apparently. Yes. So there's that. But we watched the other events too. But it, you know, everyone's up on that to the extent they want to be. We're not going to recall the, uh, the actual results. Is you know, their common knowledge. But there are some interesting angles about the Olympics that we caught in the papers. Things that kind of seemed interesting to us, at least. Uh, and one is logistics are kind of difficult. Such that uh, there's one team, one U.S. team that doesn't even didn't even go to Tokyo. Uh, the way well, they're works, going. They're dropping by Tokyo occasionally. Periodically. Uh, they're, they're in Honolulu. They, they decided that the logistics in, in Japan were uh, too daunting. So they all gathered in Honolulu, where they said family and friends can also be. Uh, so that was nice. And uh, there's um, a 19-hour time difference between Honolulu and Tokyo, um, which is tricky because, as Tamsin said a moment ago, they're in Honolulu, Training, ready to go. When it comes time to well, compete... Well, who is this? When it comes time to compete, they fly over the eight-hour flight to Tokyo, and they compete, and then they come back the next day. That's what they do. It's, no,
0: it's not the beach volleyball class. No, it's the
1: U.S. weightlifters. The U.S. weightlifters. Now, uh, the trick for them is to try to stay on a sleep schedule that mimics uh, Tokyo, which they do by uh, you know staying in dark rooms, uh, sound machines with white noise, chamomile tea, and small amounts of melatonin.
0: This sounds incredibly stupid.
1: Uh, I don't know if it's stupid or not. I mean, they're having a nice they time. First, first of all, it's impolite. Smiling.
0: It's impolite. Is it? We're going to talk later about just how many zillions of dollars yeah. poor Tokyo has spent yeah. setting up this venue. Right. Yeah. Okay? And they're not even going to
1: come? Well, they, they come and they drop left by. and they go. They drop you know, by. And do, they their,
0: go. do their thing. And they go. Go back
1: and they go. to Hawaii. Well, look, I don't think the U.S. weightlifting... All the
0: teams could have done that.
1: Uh, maybe All the they should have been
0: somewhere nice and then
1: zip over. At any event, I don't think the U.S. weightlifting team expected to make an impact at the games. I doubt that they win medals. So, this is a sad story in so no, many ways. It's not ways. a sad story. so because many ways. If No one's counting on them to win, you know, but and yet they qualify. They're trying to make this as, uh, you know, as felicitous an experience as possible. And judging by the smiles, uh, in the beach settings you see in Honolulu in the Times, uh, they're succeeding in that.
0: I, 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 you know, I still find it unacceptable. I mean, if, if, everybody else has to go and sleep on the cardboard
1: beds, those guys should too. Well, well look, I'm just, Bad re- behavior. I'm just reporting the news. Here's some other behavior. All right. So the U.S. water polo team, the women's we're talking about, we saw a lot of that. So we're here with Sadie. We're watching water polo. Let's face it. And water polo is something that we know something about. Because no,
0: we don't know anything right. about right. water let, let me be more
1: specific. I we, know, we
0: are experts in watching water polo. I know a lot We've about it. We've done a lot of watching I, of water that's polo. That's what I'm talking about. So I know we it. You don't really know what's going I'm on. I'm an expert in oh, water damn. polo. The and whole time you're sitting there saying, what's that? What? What's that? That's
1: how you learn. Oh, okay. So in any event, uh, so Sadie Granger and Zeke played water polo in school. We're watching it. And we know more than the average bear. Let's leave it at that. And we have it on good authority that uh, Pepper and Hazy can't wait to play water that's polo. That's probably true. So in any event, uh, we see a lot of water polo. Not as much as beach volleyball, but we see water polo. And the Times wrote an article uh, last week on Tuesday uh, titled, A Powerhouse Looks More Powerful Than Ever, about the women's water polo team, the U.S. team. This basically says they cannot lose. They cannot be beaten. They cannot be taken. And their record is unbelievable over the last few years. Between 2016 and 2020, uh, they won 128 games, lost only three they say the only competition that's on the horizon is Australia, and the U.S. record against Australia over the last 20 some odd games is 19 and three. I mean, they seem far superior. They win games by a lot of goals, and we're watching, and they seem to be playing closer games than the article would, uh, you know, indicate. And then, sure enough, uh, a couple days after the article appears, they lose. Uh, they lost to Hungary. Now again, it's one of those prelim opening round double elimination. I can't explain how it works. You lose, but you're not out, so they're still in, and they'll probably win the gold. But it shows you got to you got to play the games. It's uh, you don't win on your reputation, and uh, you know these other teams. I guess they didn't read the Times article, so the hungry Why are they so good? Uh, there's no real reason they have the best players, and uh, they're probably. There's if you want to know of- the truth, they're probably the most well-supported financially. Quite honestly. Oh. And because not, plenty
0: of countries have strong water know, polo, but they don't stronger have, water polo but they don't traditions support than we do.
1: Their women's programs. Oh, okay. And That's why the that's one of the reasons you see the U.S. women's success across the board in the team sports. The U.S. early adopters of supporting the women's teams. So, uh, and in fact, there was support was necessary here because the uh, they normally stay together for 16 months during which they're supported and they learn as a unit. Let me
0: guess, in Honolulu?
1: No, not in Honolulu, but be, in California it was as close. But uh, because of the pandemic, they've been together for the last 27 months, which is, uh, the Times explains makes them totally unbeatable because they can pass without looking. But apparently <laughs> they were the, the Hungarian team was looking and that was a problem. So anyway, that was interesting. Then there was uh here's something which just caught my eye because I didn't know about this. There's a fellow named Jovan Harrison uh, in track and field who is representing the U.S. both in the high jump and the long jump. And mm-hmm. you say, well, that those are both jumpy things. That makes sense. Well, they're completely different. Completely different. Uh, so much so that no athlete has represented the U.S. in both high and long jump since Jim Thorpe, since 109 years ago. The high jump is basically, you know, a couple, you know, skips and then you jump high in the air with your hops, whatever you want to call it, Go backwards the over the board. flop. The Fosbury flop. So you, you're giving away your age when I, you say I that. Actually, yes. I
0: remember in junior high school
1: learning what? to do –
0: um, That's the high
1: jump. Yeah, I could, you could know, do I, the Fosbury flop.
0: No, I didn't do that, but uh, I, I I was amazed. Well, he that anybody could do it. Just
1: you can do it. We were around. He invented yeah. it when we were uh, ten. I, I remember I think it's Dick Fosbury. Yeah, yeah. but uh, uh, but in any event, the, the long jump, uh, by contrast, is based in large part on running speed. I mean, you you have to run forward as fast as you can, and you leap off. But the speed is critical, so much so. Then you may recall Carl Lewis, the great American sprinter, he participated in sprinting and the long jump, and those two are more closely related than the long jump and the high jump. So this this fellow, uh, Harrison, won the trials of of both in the U.S. I don't know that he's favored to win anything in Tokyo, but it's still kind of amazing that he could do both. All right, so enough of esoteric about the Olympics. Here's the thing that really is gripping us, and it's the economic issues, right, Tamsin? This right. is what we feel strongly about, and you hear a little bit about it. Not so much in the games because the games coverage is more sunny disposition. But you know, economically, does it make any sense? And-
0: there's such a huge disconnect because you all, every every Olympics yeah. you hear about all the money spent. Yeah, and then after every Olympics, there's a at certain point in the Times Magazine. There's a photo essay about the abandoned facilities right. from the previous Olympics, and uh, you say, you know, uh, you have on one side the excitement and the togetherness right. the world feels about this event, and on the other side, it just seems like a tremendous folly uh, economically.
1: Well, the there's a the Times article, which was it's actually a well written, interesting article uh, by Andrew Ross Sorkin, who writes a lot of their business stuff, and. It's uh, mostly an interview with a fellow named Andrew Zimbalist, who's a professor at Smith, who's published three books about the economics of the Olympics. And he uh, predicts that the Tokyo Olympics will lose $35 billion. Not it will cost $35 billion, It will lose $35 billion. And how does that happen? Because a lot of other Olympics we've read have lost money. And the answer comes, you know, because why would a, a country do it? If they're going to lose $35 billion, that's real money, right? And the answer is that they all misestimate or underestimate the cost. On purpose. I, well, we'll get to that because that's what simplest things. And maybe and, and maybe that's the only explanation because the the uh, Tokyo Olympics, um, you know, it, it's coming in at four times the expected cost of the Olympics. Uh, every Olympics since 1960, since 1960, has run over budget an average of 172 percent, according to uh, Zimbalist. Uh, example: 2016 Rio Games budgeted at 14 billion came in at 20 billion. Uh, Russia's Olympics 2014 Winter budgeted 10.3; they spent more than 51 billion. London 2012 five billion became 18 billion. So. They do it now. So, you, so
0: four times is about right.
1: Yeah. So you put your finger on it. Now, according to Zimbalist, how does that happen? And the answer is people um, misestimate perhaps on purpose. They don't take into account all the costs. And he does a, a, an accounting. We won't go into a detail about all the costs that tend to not be counted. Um, and why do they do it? Because they want to do it. The people who are behind it, the construction industry, the unions, folks like that, people are pushing it. So, it creates so many jobs, right. the construction of it, yeah. but it has no future. It has no future. And, uh, and, and and you say, but still, how is that allowed to happen? Why doesn't an accounting firm come in? And he mentioned the possibility of a Deloitte coming in and saying, listen, guys, you got to wake up, look at this. And he says, because there's no, no incentive for an accounting firm to do that. An accounting firm who came in strong on that, if they were hired, would never get hired again by any of the public officials interested in the Olympics, they'd lose opportunities for engagements. Um, it's just, uh, it's kind of awful. And they said, well, what about the argument that you have these structures there later? People will use them. And Zimbabwe makes a very simple point. He said, if there was economic justification to have these structures in those countries, at those locales, they'd be there by now. Right. Okay? right. <laughs> they'd be there. There's no accident they're not there. And he takes the, uh, the example of Beijing who's building a skiing facility in northern China, Because a remote location, but that's what they're going to use when they have the next Olympics. And he says, there's a reason there's no no ski facility in northern China. No one's interested in skiing in northern China. It kind of runs against the, the climate generally. It's a huge folly.
0: He also mentioned they're doing this weird thing of they're having the events, the skiing events, in an area with no snow. Yeah. So they're going to have to make snow. Well, yeah, well, that's... Uh, yes. <laughs> For the is, events, they're going to have to well, transport it, well, water. Yeah, to that, make that's snow. the thing. It's not so just they have making to build snow. the
1: infrastructure to transport the water. They have to invest tens of billions of dollars, according to Zimbalist, tens of billions in a water transfer system to make the snow. Okay, none of that is going to appear in the Olympic budget, so they can sit there and say, "Well, the budget makes sense." So well, let's
0: it, hope the water transmission helps in some other way. But, so what is Zimbalist's idea? He says, look, I mean, uh,
1: he, he does what many people say. The only economic sense is to have a permanent locale or two permanent locales, but not to keep jumping around like this. He also this says not, it,
0: should ha- it could happen every two years. Yeah,
1: he'd use it more often. But he
0: says, back in the day, when it was harder to travel and harder to communicate, yeah. it took four years to, <laughs> to get anywhere and do this stuff. Well, but that's no longer necessary. But, but the
1: other thing he does point out Uh, The hope for the future, where does it lie in terms of generating revenue? Gambling. said you could make money gambling on the Olympics in a way that would help pay for it. It would create interest. Now you have now, so you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, can't you gamble on the Olympics now? You're wondering. And the answer is, you can't. But uh, there's a way for, if the Olympic Committee, the IOC, were to fully uh, embrace gambling, they could build into uh, all the scoring and all the reporting and everything, a gambling function, that they would reap a lot of the benefits of the gambling. They would skim a certain amount off that. Uh, and that may be the future, as it is for everything, is uh, gambling. 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 Gambling is the future wow. of this country. Wow! All right. So one final thing that's Olympics related, and that is the principal sponsor of the Olympics is Toyota. And Toyota, you know, those, those ads go down easy. Toyota is for the future. They're... You know, they're looking forward, uh, they've got the cars we need coming down the line, blah, 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 blah. Well, it turns out that uh, Toyota is actually running in a little bit of trouble uh, with the environmental uh, nonprofits that spearhead, uh, you know, the legislation that's upcoming. Well, that that doesn't make sense to me. Because? Toyota does the Prius, right? They are the Prius, and and they traditionally, therefore, have been identified with the environmental movement, and, or at least credited with environmental sensibility beyond the other car companies. So you have put your finger on it, as you always do, Tim. And uh, why is, so what's going on? Well, the answer is the Prius is a hybrid, and the and the Toyota folks are committed to the hybrid technology. The future, according to some car companies, according to uh, the US federal government, uh, is, are electrical cars, not hybrids, okay? And Toyota's not into electrical cars. Toyota's into uh, hydrogen cell cars, which they think have a bigger role in the future than the U.S. federal government seems to think. And other governments, too. I don't mean to single out the U.S. India has embraced uh, 100% electric cars in the future. And Toyota's saying, we don't see that. What we see is a future with some variation of cars coming down the road, but with the, the emergence of electrical cars taking much longer than these car companies are projecting. And therefore, uh, a, an important focus has to be on what we're going to do in the interim. And guess what they think the interim should be? Hybrid. Correctamundo. So that means opposing the legislation that you see from California and others, which seems to mandate electric cars in a shorter time than Toyota Sim sees as practical. I'd say, no, no, wake up, open your eyes, and uh, recognize that we're going to see and we should see a lot of hybrid cars. Over the next 10 or 15 years and that's the battle they're in but now they've gone from a uh, good guy uh by virtue of the prius to the bad guy why are they opposing progress why are they opposing the shift to electricity which is more green than anything else well because they see the future differently and if we're not going to let market forces well they see decide. a different road to progress yes exactly right but it's not going to be on market forces it's going to be on legislation so it's a matter of lobbying. So those ads that you're seeing are as much for government officials as they are for people watching really? the Olympics. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Okay, enough about that. Enough about that. Let's talk about what matters. Family matters. Yeah,
0: so in the Sunday Times, I guess in the review section or something, Yeah. Um, there was uh, an opinion piece by Emily Oster. You remember Emily. Yes. See, we talked about her uh, a few weeks ago mm-hmm. about uh, decision-making, and she, she wrote crib sheet that uh, our kids have found useful in terms of
1: figuring out uh, how to deal with new babies. Yeah, we heard about Emily Oster from our kids. Our kids, right. instead of doing what most kids are supposed to do, which is asking their parents, what, what in the world should we do? They said, well, this is what you're supposed to do, and we understand this because of data-driven analysis by Emily Oster. And we said, who? <laughs> <laughs> and
0: uh, so she's a professor of economics at Brown. And she's written a new book, The Family Firm, a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. Um, and uh, so this is kind of a stupid article. <laughs> I gotta say, Well, about how to make decisions... Um, you know, it's it's one thing to be making decisions about handling uh, young children, young babies, right? right? Uh, when they should go to bed, right. uh, where they should sleep, uh, all these things. And, you know, you look at the data that she's right. able to come up with and you say, oh, okay, it's not, you know, it's actually, it seems dangerous, but it's not dangerous according to data. We can do that, blah, 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 blah. All right, so... Uh, The problem is apparently that when kids get older, it's more about logistics to uh, raise a family than uh, you know more simple decisions of what to eat when. Well, that doesn't seem elusive.
1: That seems logical. Um,
0: So, so she is trying to help you make decisions Mm -hmm. uh, in a better way, and. I can't. I can't really agree with her. I can't really agree with her. Um, well, I'm not
1: sure she makes a, a clear proposal, honestly.
0: Well, um, well, she does say you should. Uh, you know, it kind of sounds like you should sit back and make. You know, not just let things happen. Make deliberate decisions sure. about how your life is working. Right. How things go. Right. Okay. And uh, so. One example that she raises is uh, you, you have to set up your priorities. You have, you know, kind of a set of priorities. And that's basic business thinking. What are the goals? Right. What are the, you know, what's the hierarchy of prior- priorities for the firm? You know, mm-hmm. what are we trying to do here? What's most important? And uh, she says, you, you got to achieve that. Mm-hmm. And so she uses the example of for her and her husband. Right. One of their big priorities is eating dinner at 6 p.m.
1: Right. The whole family.
0: For the whole family together. Right. Sit down, 6 p.m. Right. Okay. And, uh, well, I definitely applaud the concept of eating together. And uh, so she cites the example of, uh, you know, a friend of uh, theirs mentioned a running club. That uh, their daughter might join, mm-hmm. okay, which sounds like a positive thing. Mm. It meets two days a week. It happens to meet at 6 p.m. So Emily doesn't even raise it with the family. It's right. not. Even, it's a you know. It's Non-starter. a no starter. Right. Yeah. Um, because they have already set this priority right. of dinner at six. Right. I mean, how weird is that? You huh. can't have dinner at seven. Yeah, I know. Is dinner at six so much preferable to dinner at seven? I mean. You know, I'm sure they have their reasons, but uh, that just seemed... Well, yeah. That that didn't seem logical to me. Does that make sense to you? No,
1: it didn't make sense. I I guess it's possible, it's possible, that maybe dinner at seven doesn't even work. It's possible that the idea of having that practice at six meant that kid's not eating dinner with them, which would make it a more interesting question, honestly. I mean, if it just means you're eating dinner a little bit later as a family, fine. If it means the kid's, you know, not going to eat dinner with the family... Then you have to ask yourself, is that what you want to do? Look, look. Why would you shut
0: out the kids? Well, <laughs> I, 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 think
1: the the you, deal is you can't, is you
0: can't make any adjustments. I mean, that, that's what's bad about business that it wouldn't be, yeah. you know, take people. Look, into the I, I, I don't but know. But then there's another example. Yeah. You know the idea of. Uh, uh, one of the parents gets a fabulous job offer, yeah. but it's a longer commute and they won't
1: get home till 8.30 mm-hmm. and may not see the kids mm-hmm. before they go to bed. Well, see, that's an odd example because she says, what if the kids go to bed at 7.30? I'm saying, so what kids are going to bed at 7.30? So, yeah. What, that, that's pretty weird. <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. true. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, think what she, I think what she's trying to do, and again, I think this is the introductory paragraph of a book, which probably goes into more detail and is more informative, is she's uh, at, At its best, what she's trying to do is saying you should think logically with a somewhat organized framework about how are you going to prioritize things. Because you're going to have opportunities. You can't accept them, especially on each kid's individual basis, in a willy-nilly way and see where that leaves you. You have to think about the implications of all these potential acceptances, of all the opportunities, and decide what your priorities are for the individual children and the family. And it's hard to argue with that. Okay. Right. And to you, the extent you do it logically, even better, right? But you
0: may need to modify your priorities. You might to, you right. know, kind of work with life. Well, but I, but I applaud the idea of trying to have trying to set some priorities. Yeah. Okay. And and to be deliberate about making these decisions. Yeah,
1: I agree with that. Look, I, the idea of, of of analyzing it to business decision making seems to me a uh, huge fail. <laughs> businesses don't make des- businesses don't make decisions in, in, in a better way than normal people do. If you if you can you have an individual situation, you have a husband with whom you have a better relationship than you do your business associates. Uh you're probably of the same mind of many things. And yes, you have to think about the implications of anything that comes your way and you have to think about the various priorities and the various demands that are put on the individuals and the family and you have to fit them all together and that's what's called raising a family. There's nothing new about that. Uh, so, uh, I don't think she adds anything to the analytical framework that uh, one might apply to this. I don't think, I don't think but, she's making uh,
0: it easier. I mean, she's giving some ideas about how to make decisions. But, uh, you know, when I went to business school and uh, the one course I took with uh, Professor Oxenfeld at uh, Columbia, yeah. um, I remember him saying, you know, we, the, uh, you know, the main goal of any uh, business is to increase shareholder wealth right and so everything every decision you make yeah. you can analyze it in terms of what is the effect on shareholder wealth right. i don't i don't think you can have first of all i don't think that really succeeds for all businesses right. actually right. okay right. Yeah. and uh, second of all i again uh, here they've made it's not shareholder wealth it's dinner time or something and I don't think you can be that. Yeah, well, uh,
1: well you're right, first of all. That thesis has been challenged in the recent years. Right, right. Then,
0: now we're saying, but what about, you know, quality of life yeah. or, you know.
1: Right. But number two But number two is um, it's, it, a lot of business things can be analyzed in a, on a database way that you can't in the family. And you know, she touches on choosing a school, and yet she fails completely into coming up with any meaningful way in terms of choosing a school. And and there's so much serendipity, uh, in raising a family that is you won't I don't think you experience in business and then you almost find it acceptable in business there it would be too risk you'd be too much risk if you knew there was that much serendipity in business the same levels in your family I mean we know from a school yeah we saw certain things about the school that our kids went to that we liked and certain things that uh, you know we felt that uh, maybe weren't so great but we made a decision. Uh, and yet the things that emerged as maybe the best things about the school for kids were things we could have never figured out in a million exactly, years exactly. until they went yeah. to the school. So yeah. Uh, yeah. and I, I that's think, another mistake you make. You, you yeah. overstate your ability to, to ferret out what's really well, important. Well, you
0: remember that uh, there was an op-ed piece that said, uh, you know, don't worry about whether you'll make mistakes raising yeah. your kids. You definitely will. Right. And you won't even know what they are you know, where they're coming from. Right. You know. You're gonna uh, yes, the things that you worried say, about
1: that you think you made a mistake are actually insignificant, generally speaking. You're gonna end up making mistakes that you never realized uh, were right. on the table and those are the ones that are gonna have the implications down right. the road. The things like dinner at six that you thought yeah. were were important turn out not to be the thing. Uh, so you're basically on this ride and uh, you're just hanging in there. That's the idea. That's, what, that's my experience that's in parenting. Just, yes. You just deal your best with everything that comes your way. Just hang on, and, parents. Hang on. And you try to instill in your kids. You do your best. You try to instill in your kids an appreciation and understanding of that's what you're doing as a family unit. That there is no perfect decision making. You recognize that. That there is going to be uh, some kind of trade-offs that we're all going to have difference other family members and the family unit as a whole, and we're going to have to find some way to cobble this together and make it work. Right, everyone's going to have to have a less than ideal experience if we're going to succeed as a family. It's, uh, I think, you need buy-in. I right? like that. Less than ideal experience
0: if we're <laughs> going to succeed as a family. Uh,
1: well, I think that's true. I think mm-hmm. if you can't be everybody can't succeed. You know, just pursue everything that strikes their fancy at the well, moment. Well, I think
0: that's part of what she's saying. She's yeah. saying you can't just do. All my friends are doing it. I really want to do this. Yes. You know, it's it, you got you got to take in uh, a variety of factors. Yeah. All right, all right. So, enough said.
1: Enough said. So we'll write the next book on that. So, um, baseball. and you know I, I you know you were subjected over the last week or so to the frenzy that surrounds uh, the trading deadline in baseball. I mean, oh my
0: god! But there were trading deadlines in hockey too. Between you and Sadie, and your trading deadlines. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we enjoyed that, and but it is kind of crazy. So what happens is it's July, you know, last day in July is the deadline for making trades in the season, and what happens is is that the have-nots trade their more expensive players and the players that are not expected to be with the team in the following years to the teams that are in real competition for the top spots. So you actually have some players who are highly talented are being traded for players who are not nearly as good. Maybe they're younger, almost certainly younger in their prospects, but you're basically trading immediate performance for uh, quality down the line. Uh, so you could, you know, a team that's competing can grab one or two stars without giving up any stars, at least uh, any present stars, uh, and that's what happens. And But it, it really has increased. It's, uh, it's never been like this in baseball. I mean, the Yankees have always been famous for making some big trades and pulling in people. And they did it again this year. But it's so widespread that even the Mets do it now, which is crazy because the Mets never tried that hard to win. And now the Mets, you know, they made a deal for Javi Baez, um, who's, you know, a very well-known player. And he's not signed beyond this year. So that's what's called a so-called rental. They gave up a player to rent a player. Um <laughs> Never works for the Mets. Though. Well, the Mets haven't done and it. And once much.
0: once these guys get on the Mets, they stop hitting completely you know, or whatever they're
1: supposed to do. Yes, I, I think you, when when you said it never works for the Mets, I think you were right. And that that's that broad statement. So why are we
0: excited? Why are we we're even not nervous?
1: We're, we're monitoring the situation. We don't want the Mets to give up too much. You know, I would have been happy if the Mets didn't do anything, uh, yeah. but uh, they did something. The Borland guy is kind of interesting. You know, you got to keep the fans' interest. I mean, as the Mets fade over the next uh, six weeks. You want to have somebody look at, say, oh, should we sign this guy next year? A reason to watch. You know, oh, The Yankees right. are a little bit in that business, okay. too. But look, it used to be that the teams that would give up its players would be the real, you know, the nothing teams. The Kansas City Athletics uh, team that people used to point out years ago would give their top players to the Yankees, including Roger Maris, who started with Kansas City before he came to the Yankees in hit 61 home runs. Well, that was a while ago. Yes, but that's the way it used to be. Now you have teams like the Chicago Cubs and, and the Washington Nationals. Washington Nationals won the World Series a couple of years ago. A couple of years before that, but the Cubs did. But they're in the did. toilet this year. They're, ooh, ooh, baseball talk. Yeah. Uh, yes, they're in the toilet. Uh, well, that's what it is. So now a, a team as revered as the Washington Nationals and certainly the Chicago Cubs dump all their players. I mean, dump all their players. The, the Cubs gave up uh, half the team. The uh, the Nationals gave up. You know, the people were excited about the Phillies beating the Nationals coming back from a big deficit a few days ago. It wasn't so hard. They had traded all their pitchers earlier in the day. There was no one to pitch for Washington. I mean, it's it's just nuts. Okay, uh, there was a little article that surprisingly caught my attention about the Jungle Cruise movie. The movie's called Jungle Cruise. The Dwayne Johnson. How did you even Emily get Blunt.
0: inspired to read that article? I can't I read think of a movie that'd that be less. Attracted less. I'm not, and I'm not interested. To I'm not interested.
1: See. But I do, I am of course aware that the Jungle Cruise film is based on the Jungle Cruise ride, which always strikes me as a very thin read upon which the base a film, uh, a ride at Disney World. They've done it before, the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's a proud tradition at Disney, exploiting everything they can possibly exploit. But to the credit but of the the Disney It wasn't the
0: Pirates of the Caribbean. That was a hit,
1: right? Yes, but it was a ride. It was a film right, based on it a ride. but uh... uh, Yes, okay. And maybe this will be a hit, although I kind of doubt it. But the, my point is this. My point is that uh, as opposed to running from the notion that uh, it's kind of crass or kind of weak, to base a movie on a uh, amusement park ride. Uh, folks at Disney, to their credit, embrace it. Because apparently, they actually uh, have the main character, played by Dwayne Johnson, sort of in the role of sort of a tour guide at the beginning of the film, in the way that many tour guides have taken the microphone during the Jungle Cruise rise over the last few years, And then what the article describes is a stand-up comedy routine. But that's what tour tour
0: guides do. Especially like on uh, tour buses and things like that. Yeah, that's not
1: unusual. No, it's not unusual. But at least the the film acknowledges it. And uh, they have some cheesy jokes that they say came straight from some of the tour guides. And all the tour guides are excited about the film because they feel that they have been... There's an homage to the tour guides in the Jungle Cruise film. So it's a little more going on there than you would have thought. Move, move right along. Moving right. right along to so our last yes. article. And here's a guy who was a big deal for a short time. Ron Popeil. Ron Popeil, cheerful, infomercial king for decades. Uh, and that's exactly, he was the guy you saw on television, the television pitchman, who would say things like, uh, set it and forget it when he sold something that was like a cooking item. Or uh, but wait, there is more. I mean, you get right. the Gensu knife and okay. the steaming basket and yeah, so yeah. on. So here's the thing: they have a picture of some of the top products that uh, that Ron Popeil used to hawk. Um, I mean, it's like QVC, right? It's the it's the of QVC. And and the question is, which we had, we had, we the Abuhop household, going along, had one of these items. Which of these items, Tams Granger, do you think? The app you Hoffs went for? The chop That is a is 100% correct. You got it right. The chop
0: Did you have a chop matic I feel like we might have had a chop but I couldn't swear to it. It just, uh, it seems so familiar to me. Yes. I don't know if I just saw it at your house or we actually had one too. We did not have the Pocket Fisherman. No,
1: that's an easy I'll guess. I'll tell you that. You going and, to get... and
0: we didn't have the Set It and Forget It uh, rotisserie thing. But yeah, uh, yeah I mean, uh, I kind of love him because I love, uh, you know, there's... To be a salesperson, yeah, is a great thing. To be good at sales, you think so? Yeah, I think that's the success. I think that is the key to success in life, perhaps in parenting as well. Um, because if you can, if you can sell something, you're you're selling twenty four seven, whether you know it or not. Okay, mm-hmm. everything you're talking about when you're trying to convince your spouse to do something, you're trying to get your kids to do something, you're trying to, you know, even. In any business meeting, you mm-hmm. know, even if you think it's not like you're selling, you know, uh, cars or anything like that, but you're selling something. You're selling your proposal mm-hmm. or whatever. And if you are comfortable and clever about doing that, um, then uh, you can have a lot of success. And I think he figured out a way to do it. He mentions it's not so easy, you know, pick up anything and try to uh, figure out what it is, what all of its uh, faults are what makes it great and and how to you know get somebody to buy it it's not the easiest thing to do it in a short amount of time the elevator
1: pitch mm-hmm. in other words well i think there's a lot to what you're saying uh yeah well he was certainly the master at it and uh the chop matic uh in in the kitchen at the Abiyoff household was testament to that. I, although yeah. I think we did use it, it wasn't like we bought it and then we put it aside. I don't
0: think we used it. I think it was kind of a frustrating thing.
1: I don't think we ever chopped a piece of celery without the chopomatic. Really? Oh yeah,
0: that's interesting. Yeah. Well, he had his ups and downs business-wise. Apparently, his father invented the chopomatic, right? Yeah. His yeah. father had the business. His father passed away, then he bought the business. Mm-hmm. And then
1: he kind of ran into the ground, and then he figured out a way to make it work. Yeah, apparently. No, I mean, I'm really he looking. eventually sells it for like fifty-six million dollars. Yeah, so he did all right. I we're mean, looking at the box for the Chopomatic. We had that box. We would put it carefully back in the box. It was like a treasured item. <laughs> it, was, it was like we had bought a Hammond organ or something like that. And it was the chop. We would bring out the Chopomatic in special kitchen occasions and do the chopping and wash it carefully, and put it back in its, its cardboard box. It was uh, something we had bought from, that had been shown on television there. And it had an honored place in our kitchen.
0: All right. Well, maybe that's where you got your start in uh, your culinary skills. Yes. Uh,
1: and yes, probably.
0: Maybe if we got you a chop you could, you know, revive some of those skills.
1: <laughs> all right. So that's all we have. Uh, yeah, time to I'm get gonna... back to uh, re-entry. Re-entry, that's right. So yeah. until next we're week. We're not at the beach anymore, buddy. No, we're outside. We're doing this from the porch. Uh, this is uh, Dan Apuhoff. and Tamson Granger with. Tam what is the, the story? It's Tamson and Dan read the paper exactly, yeah. and we'll be back.